Hello and welcome to the Fidelity ETF exchange powered by Fidelity Connects, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. In this episode of the Fidelity ETF exchange, host Etienne Yonkis Bouchard welcomes Dorcas Phillips to the show. Dorcas is Fidelity International's ETF director. She speaks to Etienne about what major trends are moving the ETF European market, as well as how the market is structured. She also touches upon the impact of multiple exchanges in other countries, as well as the continued growth in the thematic and ESG space. This podcast was recorded on June 29th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange. I'm your host, Etienne Jean-Cabouchard, aka EJB, and I'm very glad to be back doing this episode, which is uh, a new uh, take for us. We're going to get perspectives from outside of the Canadian ETF industry. So reaching out to some of our partners internationally at Fidelity. Uh, as many of you know, Fidelity is a global firm. We've got uh, resources across the globe working as much on the fund side as on the ETF side. And we're really happy to have a very special guest with us today. But before I get to, uh, to our guest, as always, just a little bit of a recap of our previous episode, which was done back in April, so quite a, quite a while ago. Uh, we apologize for that, but I was on, on paternity leave for a month, so uh, apologies also if I sound a little bit tired. I am a little bit sleep-deprived these days, but jokes aside, uh, our last episode was great. We had Andre Bruno, our director of ETFs here at Fidelity Investments Canada. We recapped the Canadian industry for Q1, so flows, uh, various asset class performances. Uh, we also chatted about some of the notable market movements on the fixed income side. So obviously rates being one of those big headlines, we had a discussion on inflation. So if you do want to catch up with that, uh, those episodes, all of our past episodes are available on fidelity.ca or on your favorite podcast app under uh, the Fidelity Connects banner. So without further ado, I would love to welcome uh, our guest Dorcas Phillips, who is uh, Director of ETS for Fidelity International. Uh, she's been with Fidelity for seven years now. And prior to joining Fidelity, she was Executive Director of Europe, Middle East, and Africa ETF sales for Morgan Stanley. So a lot, a lot of industry knowledge. Uh, she's been around for a while, so we're very happy to have her join us. Dorcas, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for the invitation. Good to be here. Absolutely. Well, you know, let, let's just get go ahead and get started. I mean, we have, like we said, about 25, 30 minutes to chat. So I'm going to try to throw as many things as possible at you. Uh, but really, the objective today is to get a deeper understanding of the international ETF market with an emphasis on Europe, obviously, because I think uh, for, for, for the most part, I, I, I'd say Canadian investors probably look more to that area when they think international, uh, albeit, you know, Asia is probably an area of growth, which we can we can definitely uh, talk about. 
but this podcast, for the most part, focuses on Canada, but we're only really a small share of the global market. Uh, we're about one fifth the size of the one, you know, overseas, if you will, so including international developed markets. Uh, so to give you an idea, there's been about 70 billion of net flows year to date as of end of May. And correct me if I'm wrong, I think something around that uh, for the international market, whereas here in Canada, we're around 15 billion. So that's pretty much equals to the size AUM total that I was mentioning about 20%. So I don't know if just to start, just kind of a, a 10,000 foot view uh, landscape of the ETF market in your neck of the woods. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the European ETF um, market now is around $1.6 trillion um, in total. And that's actually doubled over the last five years. So um, it's an area that's seen significant growth. I mean, we're still, you know, obviously way behind the US and we have, I guess, different challenges versus the US. But, um, you know, we're, we're definitely seeing growth. And, and if we kind of look at the trajectory, you know, everyone, you know, kind of independent firms are kind of predicting, you know, we're going to hit that two trillion um, number in in the not too far distant future. Um, I think one of the really uh, fascinating facts, at least for me, for someone who's been involved in ETS for a long time, um, is you know, obviously the growth, but. More importantly, I think it's the it's the ETF market in terms of the number of products. Um, so as it currently stands, um, there's around uh, two and a half thousand exchange traded products available in in Europe, and and within that number, that includes you know some of the um, exchange traded certificates and notes, etc. But you know, in terms of just exchange traded funds, um, there's around two thousand products available. So I mean, that's that's a that's a pretty big big number, I think when you're you're when you're a fund selector or you're an investor and you're looking to make a product selection. Um, so so the growth has been um you know pretty um consistent um, and rapid in terms of the number of products as well. And and then I think you know we, we kind of then take that number and then we look at you know the number of listings. So one of the challenges that we have in Europe is the fragmentation across the various different exchanges um, where um, you know, investors are looking to have a product listed on their local market. So, you know, we don't have this luxury, if you will, of one exchange, one currency. You know, we, we have this this kind of additional layer of fragmentation um, and an additional layer of complexity. So of those 2,000 ETF products I talked about, we actually have um, 10,000 listings. Um, so, you know, the the... The ETF market in terms of the, the population, if you will, um, but also from an ETF issuer perspective in terms of ensuring that you have the right amount of um, uh, visibility within your targeted markets um, is, is, is quite a challenge. So, yeah, it's a market that is is growing. Um, uh, there's a lot there's a there's, there's a there's a lot of growth there. But, um, yeah, we, we definitely have some challenges uh, within within that space. That's really interesting. And, you know, like you said, the, the fragmentation aspect of having various exchanges must cause a challenge not only for, for investors, but for, for an asset manager like Fidelity, for example, when, when coming to, to market with products. Is there, you know, a concentration towards a few of the certain exchanges, like, for example, the one in London or, uh, you know, it could be in, in Germany? Uh, is there ones that are much bigger than others that you'd say, like, say, more than 50 percent would find themselves on, on a given one? 
Yeah, it's, it's a really good point because actually listing strategy becomes as important a consideration as, you know, product strategy. Um, because as I mentioned, you know, you, you, you want to ensure that, you know, your target markets or your focus markets or the markets where you have, you know, you, you know, the kind of the, the biggest kind of a client base, you want to make sure that you, you have visibility there. Um, you know, I would say historically, um, you know, there's been a couple of key exchanges. So Fidelity, as an example, as a default, will always list on the London Stock Exchange, um, uh, the Deutsche Borsa in Germany, the SIX Exchange in Switzerland, um, and the Borsa Italiana uh, in Milan. So they're kind of the four exchanges where, where, we, where we really kind of look to ensure that we have, um, uh, ha- have visibility. And, and, and this is where I guess the multiple um, uh, listings comes into place because you then have to have a, a listing in the right currency um, and then you have like your share class, hedge share classes, et cetera. So, you know, this is kind of where you get this multiple listings of, of one particular fund. Um, but what's been quite interesting, I think, you know, post post Brexit, um, you know, London, I would say historically was always the default go to exchange. And, and it's still absolutely a, a kind of a critical um, exchange for having visibility and, and being present. But you know, we're seeing an emergence of, you know, um, other exchanges coming to play. And, and, and actually, there's been some consolidation across some of the exchange um, exchange houses across Europe. So Euronext, for example, they have the, the Amsterdam exchange, the Paris exchange, etc. So we're, we're definitely seeing that there's a bit of a shift and, and uh, you know, that strategy of listing and visibility is becoming more important. But that consolidation, I think, hopefully will, will kind of, you know, guide us in, in, in a direction where, um, you know, where, where we kind of improve things. Because, one thing that you know this this fragmentation kind of brings is this lack of visibility around liquidity. Um, you know, I, I mean, you know, in the US, you know, we kind of have this kind of central pool of liquidity, but this fragmentation that we see means that bizarrely, an exchange traded fund in Europe is generally not traded on exchange. Um, you know, they're listed on exchange, but the, the kind of the activity happens off exchange because this fragmentation of liquidity pools. Interesting. So, yeah, I think there's definitely a drive to, you know, across the industry to kind of, you know, do what we can to consolidate volumes, provide transparency around volumes and, and, and look at a more efficient kind of strategy um, for, for all of our clients. No, that makes a lot of sense. And also from an investor standpoint, right? If you're, um, you know, depending on where you are located, I mean, obviously, or where your, your trading account may be, uh, I imagine then if you, if you have a, say, say an ETF that's listed in multiple exchanges, it might be more expensive or less expensive to trade a given ETF from a spread standpoint from- 100%. Yeah, uh, you know, depending on where you are, but then you also have to consider the, you know, like you mentioned that, you know, currencies and you may be paying something for that. And then so it is a bit more complicated than I guess in, in Europe from that standpoint, at least. Um, but that's really interesting to see. Cause I mean, obviously in Canada, I guess we're, we're kind of lucky in a certain way, but I guess unlucky, it's pretty much a monopoly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we've got the Toronto Stock Exchange. Uh, we also have the NEO Exchange, which is now becoming a bit more popular, but uh, you know, it, it is fairly centralized, so it does make our, our job a bit easier. But um, no, that, that's really interesting. I guess my next question that I have is more with regards to kind of who's buying these products, right? Because um, for, for us in Canada, I mean, it's very hard to see exactly like the split between, say, institutional, uh, you know, retail, and then, you know, maybe let's, you know, say in between or semi-institutional, if you will, with like, uh, for example, wealth managers and things like that, advisors. How's the split look like 
on your end? Because for us, it seems like retail is definitely heavy, right, with regards to ETFs. Do, do institutions also buy ETFs in Europe? Yeah. I, I would say we're kind of the, the total reverse of what you, you, you have in your local market right now. Um, so... You know, and I, again, you know, I think this is a, you know, this is where kind of the European market in itself is, it kind of operates quite differently. Um, you know, in the US, where you know, obviously in, and, and it sounds like in the same for you guys in Canada, you know, retail investors are kind of have have been kind of heavily invested in their own investment um, portfolios, and and that hasn't really been the case um, so much in in Europe, but it's it's changing. Um, you know. But to answer your question in terms of the, the investors right now, um, it's dominated by the wholesale channel. So, you know, I, I guess I would split the market into three different kind of segments, retail, wholesale, your, you know, your, your, your private banks and, and your kind of you know, um, asset managers. And on the institutional side, your kind of insurance and pension funds. So the wholesale channel is without question the kind of the most dominant um, uh, section or, or users, sorry, uh, and adopters of, of ETFs. But retail is becoming a hot topic. Um, you know, it's I, there was a recent uh, publication by BlackRock um, that um, predicted that I think in the next year there'll be six million new retail investors um, in in Europe uh, investing in, in specifically investing in, in ETFs, and that's kind of really been driven by you know kind of robo advisors and you know this kind of new um, I guess new take up of technology and and ETFs are kind of like the perfect tool for that, right? I mean, in terms of access and and choice, and we just talked about the number of products that are available. Um, so you know, this the, the kind of robo advisors are, are absolutely adopting ETFs as a vehicle of choice. Um, so that's kind of you know bringing in this kind of new um, you know uh, stream of, of of retail investors. So and because of this robo advisors and technology, it's also kind of like increasing kind of the adoption of of, of personal investors. And taking a little bit more um, um, in, in involvement in in their own kind of pensions and and investments. So, as it stands, without question, wholesale dominates that space. But you know, retail, I think, is is the area where we're expecting some growth in the coming years. That's that's really interesting because I think Canada is a little bit more maybe like what you've just described, where I think historically the wholesale channel has been. Uh, predominant but then you know you've seen this really big growth in the di you know diy investor that you know <laughs> opens a trading account finds etfs that they like uh and then and then purchases them through through those exchanges but uh it still remains the wholesale channels is quite large but it also changes the way that uh asset management firms like fidelity though that, you know in terms of new products that are being launched and then you look at flows you know you're you're starting to see more products that are focused for those diy investors like for example, here we've seen a massive growth in uh, what we, you know, multi-asset type strategies, where it's basically these turnkey, you know, all-in-one type solutions where you get a 60-40 mix, it's rebalanced automatically, you know, just a really set it and forget it type product. I guess I just kind of planted myself for my first more in-depth questions in terms of products and different lineups and things like that. Is that something that's uh, popular in, in Europe or are you more really on the standalone solutions type uh, type approach for, for now? Uh, maybe it's it'll come as as the, that new category grows, if you will. So, so that's interesting. I think in terms of the product mix right now, it's still very much in this kind of standalone building blocks, if you will. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, the choice that you have there is is fast. Um, but the kind of, I guess, the, the constructing 
a portfolio using the ETFs is still very much within within the hands of, of the experts and the robo-advisors, et cetera. But multi-asset ETFs, you know, I think is is definitely something where there's there's interest. And we've got one or two products um, available. It's definitely kind of new. It's not, not Fidelity, I should hasten to add at this point. But, um, you know, there are, there are, you know, a handful of products that do offer that kind of solution. But if we kind of link that back to the previous point about um, retail investors, um, you know, you've kind of got robo-advisors or you can go alone. Um, and, and, you know, as you say, the, the kind of the multi-asset, um, fully kind of wrapped up solution, rebalancing, the management piece, you, know, you can see that that's attractive if you're selling the vehicle. So at this moment in time, no, but I, I definitely think it'll be something that we'll see coming. Interesting. What, you know, I guess one of the main debates that we have, I feel like we have it every single day, <laughs> uh, is active versus passive. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, passive has predominantly been the, 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 I guess, the investment style of choice, if you will, for most ETFs in the past. You know, in Canada, when I started three years ago, it was about 75, 76% of AUM in ETFs domiciled in, in Canada were passively managed. Now we're down to about 68%. So we've seen a little bit, you know, of a, of a, a gap being reduced, if you will. How's that split looking like overseas? So I I hear you, and I think it's the same here. We're definitely seeing kind of that shift from ETFs being, you know, kind of core benchmark um, exposures to um, something a little bit more, I guess, interesting, if you will. Um, so on, on the active, but but what I would say is that active in Europe means something different to. When we talk about certainly in, in terms of the US, ETFs in Europe here have to be transparent and disclose their holdings. So that kind of just that kind of limits the amount of activeness you can bring to a fully transparent product because you know effectively you you, you know there's a true active fund is not looking to kind of disclose um, you know the holdings on a on a daily basis. Yeah, you don't want to uh, you don't want to tell everybody your secret sauce if you will every at the end of every day. So it makes sense. Exactly, you <laughs> want to keep that to yourself. But what what they're doing and Certainly what Fidelity here in Europe is doing is looking at systematic active. Um, so one way that we are kind of, you know, looking to kind of um, you know, lead on that trend is uh, looking at ways that we can systematically incorporate Fidelity's kind of active heritage and IP through you know, leveraging, you know, um, our, our analyst ratings, et cetera, um, within a, a systematic portfolio where obviously we're kind of constraining ourselves and we're fully transparent around the approach that we're taking and we're comfortable um, disclosing our holdings and the other way that we are you know looking to incorporate our active IP into our ETF solutions is by designing our own indices so I think that's really important as well in as much as you know we feel quite strongly that you know we have this huge kind of amount of expertise and this skill set across the organization which our clients you know, love us for, right? you know, they, they come to us because they, 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 they understand and believe in our processes. So, you know, being able to you know, construct an, an index where we are able to inform factor definitions using kind of the expertise from our analysts, where we're able to, you know, really design the portfolio construction based on those kind of those years of, of active management um, through a kind of very, very transparent rules-based index um, that that is, is is kind of fueled by Fidelity's, you know, um, active business is, is also really important to us as well. So, I'm not sure if that directly answers your question, but you know, it, it's um, you know, I can definitely see that you know this active piece is key, and and you know, we hear 
every day of new entrants coming to the market and it's it's typically or, or certainly an entrance looking to come to the market and it typically are these traditional active managers who are um, looking at ways to, to kind of bring their solutions to, to a different audience. Well, I think you bring a great point because and you said you're not 100% sure if you answered the question exactly, but it's because also the, the main reason behind that is because I think there's a, still a misunderstanding on what, you know, passive means which you know at, at the heart of uh, at the end of the day if you will it, it's it's cap weighted indices i think is the way that, that to look at it and so if you're building out an index that uses fundamental characteristics that uses analyst ratings that uses any other metric that's basically not you know the size of, of a given you know equity uh, issuance well you're basic you're creating some active share in a certain way, yeah. uh, whether it's systematically implemented or there, if there's a portfolio manager making the calls on a daily basis, you're not replicating a benchmark based on its size. So I think that's really interesting. It's, it's a road that we've taken also here at Fidelity Canada with some of our factor ETF lineup, which uh, we're really happy with and, and, and kind of a differentiator in the market. And now we actually know we're now, given the fact we don't have to be fully transparent on disclosures, we actually launched some active mandates recently. So, uh, you know, we're, we're entering that that space a little bit. But um, that's interesting to, to hear. One area I think, though, that I think Europe especially uh, has led is on thematics and the ESG aspect and kind of the, you know, so for, for anyone listening, environmental, social governance criteria is being implemented in uh, stock selection and, and, or, you know, bonds could also be applied in this case, but any security, if you will, but adding an overlay of sustainability and, um, you know, I was just looking at the flows, for example, that you had sent me and provided me before we started and looking at some of the, you know, even the, the ETFs we have at Fidelity International in terms of assets there, there is an appetite for those types of strategies. It, it, I don't know if you could expand a bit on that and kind of what's yeah. driving that, um, yeah. And how that's changed maybe over the past couple of years. Yeah, so I, I think sustainable investing is um, you know, obviously has become more and more relevant across the globe. But um, you know, certainly in Europe, I think you know, it's been driving um, you know, some of the you know certainly the Nordic regions going back you know fifteen twenty years have been kind of considering sustainability into its investing. So kind of naturally within Europe, the the kind of sustainable um, uh, funds has 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 kind of grown. But I think what been really interesting is that sustainability means so many things to so many different mm -hmm. people right you know <laughs> i mean you, you know you talked about the e the s and the g you know what what what's important to you and how do you measure it um you know and then i think one one of the things that has been the, the evolvement within the space over the last couple of years is just thinking about actually ESG or sustainable investing doesn't necessarily mean just excluding certain business activities. So, you know, like generation one, sustainability was, you know, they would exclude like certain tobacco stocks or gambling or, you know, the kind of basic kind of basic levels of business activities. And, and that's evolved. And so we're kind of finding we're in like second, third generation of kind of sustainability here. We do have some regulatory kind of guidance, SFDR, which kind of classifies, you know, how a fund can, you know, how effectively how how sustainable is a fund, and and there's, there's different kind of ratings, and so you know, a fund with a, a basic level of, of exclusions on business activities, which to be fair. It, it, it is more than enough for some investors, right? They want to kind of make sure that the, that the core allocations that they're putting to play are 
um, are, are kind of aware, socially aware. Um, and, and then kind of the, the, the kind of when you get to like this third generation or certainly some of the, the recent launches that we've had here in our fixed income space is looking at um, sustainability through um, and, and being aware of things like the Paris alignment. So being aware around um, emissions and having a specific emission reduction target within that fund over 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 the, the coming years. So we kind of see this kind of um, ev- evolution from exclusions to engagement to thinking about more specifically around, you know, things like carbon and and and, and emissions, et cetera. So it's definitely a focus. Um, we are seeing, you know, uh, on a on a weekly basis, new sustainable funds being launched. In fact, you'd kind of question why a, a new fund would come to market without some kind of sustainability awareness or inclusion um, and or um, existing funds being repurposed um, to to incorporate um, you know various levels of, of sustainability into them so definitely a question every client meeting you know, it, you know when you talk about a product you kind of you, you go in there you know, this is the product this is the OTF and this is a sustainability kind of um, approach that it takes. It's um, it, it's almost like a must-have now um, to, to 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 investors expect to kind of know um, uh, how it's been incorporated. That's that's fascinating because I think we definitely are behind in on that front, if you will, with regards to it being an automatic kind of criteria that is considered when when looking at an investment, where it feels like here. Uh, it can be for certain investors and for some, it's still not even on the radar to a certain extent. Um, you know, it, it's almost hard. One, one thing that I've tried to, to figure out and maybe maybe you have some insights on your end. Is it like, is this driven from a top down or from a bottom up? So let's take a pension fund, for example, in the Nordic regions. Is it the people managing these pension funds that that really want to emphasize this and, pr- and show to the people that are, inve- I guess, contributing to the, to the pension, you know, we are doing this in a sustainable way? Or is it the contributors that are saying, we want you to invest our money with a more sustainable approach, if you will, or consideration? Um, or both? I think, it, <laughs> well, I, I think it's both. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's the easy answer, but I, I think it is both because... Initially, I would say it was definitely driven from top down. Um, you know, I, I think there's been more pressure generally on on every kind of organisation, whether you're in the finance industry or any industry, to demonstrate that you know you you are kind of taken into you know you've been a good corporate you know investor citizen you know and you have that kind of governance in place. So I think it naturally then lends itself to you know if you're an investor, a financial firm, and you're investing in these companies, are you kind of is that also a selection criteria for you so that you're actually kind of effectively following your same, um, you know, the, the same approach and rules that you have for your own company? Are you also incorporating that in, into your kind of pension or in, uh, that, that you're kind of, you know, it's being managed for your own investors? And then I think, you know, that was definitely, I think, the starting point. But now, you know, we go back to the kind of retail discussion Again, I think more general awareness and, you know, maybe you went back 10 years ago, um, it it may not have been a consideration, but I I do think investors now are asking those questions Um, and, you know, the press and, uh, you know, everything is so visible now, Um, you know, when there's a a bad story, everyone knows about it. And and I, uh, you know, investors would ask themselves some questions if it, it, you know, is it a company, do I want to be invested in that? So um, I, I think it's, 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 
it's driven from top down, but I, I definitely think that there is, you know, as as we kind of as it evolves, um, end investors are more inclined to be involved. Yeah, so more of a widespread adoption to a certain extent, but that's that's interesting. I think that's kind of what we're seeing here also, and um, you know, you're seeing investors uh, even on like in the wholesale side, right? Not necessarily let let's think people you know that that are contributing to a pension or things like that. Uh, you know, going to see their wealth professional and saying what's green or, you know, not green in my portfolio, what's socially responsible, what's not socially responsible. And so I think that's going to continue to evolve as we go forward. And I think it's definitely here to, to, to stay for sure. And the way that it looks in, ten, in five years is probably going to be very different than what it looks like right now. Yeah, uh, But it's definitely <laughs> evolved a lot, uh, even over the past five years. So that's, that's something to keep an eye on for anybody listening to uh, this podcast episode is it's probably not going away. And, it's, and there's going to be more new, cool uh, investment strategies also that are going to come out with regards to uh, ESG investing. So I'm, go- I'm going to shift gears a little bit here. And I absolutely want to talk about one topic in particular with regards to this is more of an asset mix discussion, if you will, or asset class discussion uh, with with rates where they've gone over the past year, year and a half. You know, if I'm looking at, you know, the euro area interest rate, uh, the first hikes that you guys have seen since the European banking crisis in 2011, 2012, how has that impacted demand for, say, fixed income strategies? And for, uh, so for example, here, we've seen a massive haul of money being brought into cash alternatives, uh, whether that's money market type securities or literally high interest, like ETFs that take money from investors, put it in high interest savings accounts, and that's your ETF. Um, is that something that you're seeing on your end, uh, any comments you have with regards to kind of the, the, the I guess the the impact of these rate hikes on the ETF market, if you will, and, and flows? Yeah, so I think in terms of flows, um, for all of the reasons you just mentioned, you know, the the flows that we're seeing are into fixed income. So as an example, for the year um, twenty twenty three up to the end of May, we had the same amount of flows um, as we saw in the, in the whole of twenty twenty two in fixed income. Um, solutions and taking into consideration as well that you know fixed income ETFs at the moment only make up around 25% of the, of the, of the total uh, total AUM so you know it's definitely as I say it's the area of growth and it's where we're seeing and, and ultimately clients are looking for yield um, as you say these kind of like short-term um, short duration cash plus if you like trades are um, be- becoming more and more relevant so yeah I definitely think that that's going to be the trend that we're going to continue to see um, in the fixed income space. And as a result of that, it's really important for ETF issuers to have a kind of a diverse range of solutions um, available to, to allow people to, to position themselves during these kind of volatile um, um, markets. And as you say, you know, this rising rate environment is um, you know, it's, it's something we haven't been used to for a long while. Um, so yeah, it's, I think we're all kind of re-acclimatizing ourselves to, to what that is and, and, and how, how we kind of position um, you know, our portfolios for kind of the coming years. So definitely you know, a, a, an area of focus. And, and of course, then on the equity side, you know, uh, maybe a shift to value um, you know, is 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 something that we um, we're, we're starting to see, and I would expect to see um, in in this kind of like this interest rate environment. So, um, I I think it would be fair to say that you know certainly investors in the wholesale channel, there's been kind of a bit of a risk off positioning um, during you know the start of 2023, um, and I think as we move in towards the end of you know H two. 
um, we'll see, you know, uh, kind of a, even more of an allocation to, to fixed income. And actually, um, I think one important observation that um, I was discussing with someone just last week is that ETFs actually become kind of a perfect tool for that positioning because many investors are kind of used to kind of buying directly equities, right? It's, it's you know, it's, it's easy to do. You can do it through your brokerage account. Fixed income markets are completely different beasts, right? You've got to pick your issuer. You've got to pick your, 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 your bond. You've got to use so much choice. And also operationally much more challenging you know you may not have the ability to do that so having a an etf that allows you to easily allocate yourself to the market um during these kind of different kind of market cycles i think are really key and and that will also um i believe help with the you know the the kind of increased demand that we'll see for for the fixed income etf vehicle yeah that's that's really interesting and it's kind of this so it's you know it feels like there's a lot of rhyming, if you will, with what we're seeing here in terms of uh, in terms of flows, because I think there's there's been so so far this year, there's been twice as much flows into fixed income than there has been equities. And for us, it's more of a 65, 30 split ish. And then the rest is in these alternative strategies and all these different uh, different things. Uh, but you're definitely seeing a bit of uh, of buying. And what's really interesting, actually, which is actually to, to my great surprise, because uh, the cash alternative side is still accumulating assets, but the short term bond stuff is actually bleeding assets. And then the long term bonds is the one that's gaining. So you're seeing people being proactively adding duration, which is, you know, usually flows tend to be a little bit of a lag, because as you mentioned, uh, you see more of a defensive positioning since the beginning of 2023. Markets haven't been that bad over the past six to eight months, right? So, uh, whether you bought bonds back, in, you know, in, in Q4 of last year or equities, you know, you would have done pretty well. It's just we. It seems to be more reactionary. But the, what we're seeing on the uh, fixed income side is a bit of proactiveness, which is really welcome because, uh, you know, I, I'm obviously that that's kind of what we're slowly preaching is, you know, if you're if you've got no duration right now, well, you know, it might not be a bad thing to to progressively start adding some to the portfolio. So, uh, really interesting stuff here look i mean we're already at 32 minutes this has flown by one last question for you and you know we've talked about a few trends here you know active passive esg uh flows from you know a different asset class perspective if there was one trend that you would say you know maybe we've left out or that you're keeping an eye on for the next 12 say 24 months so the next couple years that you think isn't getting that much attention but is really it, you know, could surprise a lot of people in terms of, you know, where we're heading. Is, is there something that sticks out? Do you know, again, I mean, maybe, um, you know, I, I was thinking as you was asking the question, I think it's almost about having a broad choice. I think we're going into kind of, um, let's say, unprecedented terms in terms of, you know, the market. Um, it's, it's, not like the last 10 years. I mean, there's, you know, there's concerns around like cost of living and interest rate, et cetera. I think it's having, you know, a broad, diverse range of, of solutions available to investors. And I also think we touched on it earlier, but we didn't have a chance to talk about it. So maybe that's one for next time. But, um, you know, thematics, you know, I, I you know, the, the 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 views of investors are changing. I mean, it's not just about equity, and as you say, just not market cap anymore. You know, things like AI and and those kind of um, areas are dominating our lives. Um, but you know, if you read any kind of like fan, financial press, you know, you're you're kind of being dominated by you know 
what's going to have, what kind of influence it's going to have um, in, in all of our futures. And therefore, it would kind of make sense to kind of be invested in that in some way. Um, so I, I think thematics, you know, whilst we've seen a significant up to increase in products. I think there was 50 products launched um, in Europe last year. And interestingly, we, on the day that we launched our, or the week that we launched our um, thematic ETFs, there were three metaverse ETFs launched in the same week. I mean, so, I mean, it just kind of shows you that it's kind of like the, the level of thinking. Um, but I, I think thematics is where yeah, and an investor will start to kind of just be a little bit more selective, you know, and instead of taking on that broad market, it's being a little bit more, um, you know, uh, thinking a little bit more about their allocation to kind of certain areas maybe within the market that that would be that would be my guess awesome yeah so getting more specific if you will with certain investment strategies so that's uh that's really great i want to thank you so much for your time today dorcas this has been really awesome like we said you know this has flown by so i guess we might have to do this again and make you a recurring uh you know our recurring yeah. <laughs> guest from from fidelity <laughs> international and it was really great to have you so thanks once again no thank you very much have a good afternoon thank you thank you everybody for joining us we'll catch you next time thank you for listening to the etf exchange powered by fidelity connects don't forget to follow fidelity canada on twitter and subscribe to fidelity connects on your podcast platform of choice and if you like what you're hearing leave a five-star rating or review thanks again and see you next time